Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. What do you do with unanswered prayer? How do you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers? That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, You have maybe heard it said, God has three answers to prayer. Yes, we'll see, and no. I mean, he's just like a father. Sometimes I say yes to my kids. Sometimes I used to say, we'll see, and sometimes it's just a flat no. Um, I love yeses. You know, you love yeses. You pray about a job interview, you go to the job interview, you get the job in, they get the job, they pay you more money than you were expecting. Love those kind of answers to prayer. Love those kinds of answers to prayer when you're, you're in a dilemma and you go in there with fear and trembling. You prayed about it and God resolves it. And it's like, whoa, the burden's gone. You go to the doctor, the doctor has a fix and voila. Love those kind of answers. Uh, we'll see. I can live with them. No, I hate them. And, you know, what do you do with a we'll see or a no? How do you respond? Well, you know, we we all believe in God's goodness and we all believe in God's sovereignty and we understand he's wiser than we are and sometimes we'll see means not yet or not at this time or or something like that. And uh, no means, well, you know, he must have a better idea. You know, imagine that. God would have a better idea than we do. But, uh, you know, we can live with that. But you know what? I don't care who you are. You get enough will sees and enough knows. It becomes very tempting to get bitter and a little cynical, maybe even a little sarcastic. And you start to wonder, okay, what's the deal? And it almost, even though we get tons of yeses, we get so many yeses, we forget to even say thank you for them. We get tons of yeses, but because we get more than what we think is our fair share of will sees and knows, it's real easy to, to just start focusing on those. And it's almost like God is absent or worse. He just doesn't care. I mean, in all of us, because we come to a church like this, we know God is able. Uh, But sometimes we wonder, is he really willing? Is he really willing to fix that? Is he really willing to do what it is we think needs to be done? Because sometimes we, we think about it hard enough, and eventually it's like, He's not even, he's not even in the game. Well, I brought all that up because I think the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today helps us with that. Now, I've asked you to turn to Matthew 18, at Matthew 8. We are walking through the book of Matthew and we're taking big steps through the book of Matthew. Um, 
And just kind of looking at a lot of the, the big movements as Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And of course, the story of Jesus is told in the Bible four times by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one told it from a different perspective. And what we've been seeing is that Matthew is telling it primarily from the perspective of the fact that Jesus is the king. It's not that Mark, Luke, and John denied him being the king. That just wasn't their primary focus. Matthew is writing to particularly to believing Jews who lived about 30 years after Jesus had gone back to heaven. And he was assuring them that Jesus really was the king. And he was helping clarify for them what happened to that kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if Jesus was the king, what happened to the kingdom? It's been 30 years. It still isn't here. What's going on? Matthew is writing to help them with that. But the primary emphasis is that Jesus is the king. And we're now at that part of the story where, you know, they're, they're basically the nation of Israel is vetting Jesus. Uh, you know, if we were to liken, liken Jesus' ministry to a political campaign, maybe a presidential campaign, it's like Jesus has been stomping through Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, the first two states that get to decide, you know, in the primaries. You know, he's trying to convince those people that he really is the king. And the way he's doing it is by preaching and teaching and performing a few miracles every once in a while. And, and basically, he is showing their credibility. That's where we are in the story. And chapters 8 through about chapter 11 are basically Jesus demonstrating the fact that he's the king. He's the king come ready to provide them with the kingdom. So you got your Bible in uh, Matthew 8. What we're going to do today is we're going to basically see three three miracles that that demonstrate his credibility. Three miracles, three three. I want to say random miracles. They're not random. They were just the ones. I mean, he he performed dozens, if not hundreds, of miracles, and Matthew strategically chose a few miracles to demonstrate just who Jesus was. And so we're going to look at those three. Here's the first one. The first one was a leper that Jesus healed. Look at Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4. And when he had come down from the mountain, remember last time we dealt with this two weeks ago, Jesus had preached this incredible sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. When he had come down from the mountain, a great multitude followed him. And this is uh, chapter 8, verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him. Now, we don't know that much about leprosy, okay? We maybe know it intellectually, but, but leprosy was basically the killer coronavirus of Jesus' day. I mean, we all developed our own attitudes about uh, the pandemic and corona and COVID-19 and all that stuff. But I want you to think back to those first couple of weeks in March of 2020 when we didn't know. I mean, even the most hardened of us and the most sarcastic of us and the most suspicious of us 
social distanced. We stayed home from the places we were usually going to because it's like everything's shutting down. You know, when we canceled church and said, hey, we're just going to do it online, there wasn't, you know, anyone that said, what do you mean we're going to cancel? I mean, everyone was in, you know? I mean, because there's this highly contagious disease and we don't know what it's going to do and how many millions of people it's going to kill. Well, that's how leprosy was, but even worse. When a person got leprosy, it was a skin disease, their digits would rot off. And it was highly contagious. And so it was just protocol. You, you know, you're talking about social distancing. These people social distanced. They'd head down a street and it was just expected that if you saw, if you were a leper and you saw someone else on that street, you yelled out, unclean, unclean, because you're warning them. You got to stay away from me. And it wasn't six feet or 10 feet. I mean, it was a long way away. You had to move out of your house. You couldn't stay in your subdivision. You moved to these colonies. And and it was just horrible. Okay, so Jesus preaches this sermon. He comes down. Now, he's been working the area. Remember, we talked about how he's working Galilee, which is the northern section of the land. He's been working it. And so his, his reputation has grown. People know what he's about. People have seen him do some miracles. Look at this. Behold, a leper comes up to him and bows down to him. Now, think about it. The multitude scattered, I'm sure. Here comes a leper, and I don't care how great a preacher Jesus was, even his congregation left. Probably the only people even close to him were the likes of Peter, James, John, and obviously Matthew, and maybe a few others. But the dozens or hundreds of people that had decided, hey, we're going to follow him, you know, because he just delivered this incredible sermon up there on the mountain. They split. So they got away from him and, and they didn't really see it. But Matthew did. And the leper says to him, this is super significant. Verse two, Lord, if you are willing Wow, isn't there a sermon, something about he is able and willing? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And look at this, stretching out his hand, he touches him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And again, think about this. Go back to the latter part of March 2020, when all of us just didn't know about this COVID-19, this is like taking your mask off and getting literally nose to nose with someone you know has it and breathing on each other. It's even worse than that. Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him and says, I am willing. Be clean. And he heals him. And look at this, verse, verse four, or verse, into verse three. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, verse four, see that you tell no one. What's that about? Aren't we supposed to share the good news? No, you know what's going on in a passage like this? See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering 
that Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. You know what Jesus is doing? Just in a nutshell, he's regulating his popularity. He's controlling it. I mean, if the word gets out that Jesus can heal lepers, every leper in the world would be coming to him. If the word gets out that Jesus takes care of cancer, every cancer victim would be coming to him. Wait a minute, isn't Jesus about helping people? Sure, he's all about helping people. But you know what? He actually has a bigger priority, and that is that he is instituting the work of God, the kingdom of God. Jesus had hundreds of people who needed healing that he just walked right by. Not because he didn't care about them, but because he had a focused mission. But what he did do is he said, go show the priest. Because, see, to, to be declared clean so that you didn't have to social distance anymore, the priest had to give you a clean bill of health. So glad we have doctors now instead of preachers having to handle that one. But, uh, you know, he says, go show the priest. Now, what, what, what was that about? It's not just so that the priest would give him a clean bill of health. It's like Jesus, remember, he's way up in Galilee, 90 miles away from Jerusalem, which might as well have been a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in our time. And, and he is basically sending through the grapevine a message to Jerusalem that a leper got healed. I mean, shoot, there hadn't been a leper healed in 800 years. The last leper that was healed was Naaman, healed by Elisha, when Elisha told him to go take a dip in the Jordan River seven times. Lepers hadn't been healed since then. This is news. This is big news. And if that leper did what he was supposed to do and that priest did what he was supposed to do, you know, a few weeks later, by the time the news got there in Jerusalem, Someone should have said, whoa, a leper has been healed? I mean, that, that's like Messiah stuff. We ought to check this out. Well, that's the first miracle. Remember, I said we're going to look at three miracles. Just real quickly, here's the next one, the Gentile. Now, this is several verses long. It goes from verse 5 down to verse 13. So I'm just going to tell it to you. Uh, a centurion. Centurions were Roman officers. They commanded a hundred soldiers. Uh, interestingly, in the Bible, every time you see a Roman centurion, they're always kind of presented in a good light. Not that they're saved or, you know, godly people, but they're, it's always viewed very respectably. Just a interesting coincidence there. But the centurion, And we find out from Luke, when he tells the story, he actually sent word through some of his servants to Jesus and said, hey, could you heal my servant? The centurion had a servant who needed healing. The servant obviously was a Gentile as well. These are Gentiles, okay? Jesus is a Jew, sent to the Jews, all that stuff. Jews were, or Gentiles were dogs as far as the Jews were concerned. Huge racial divide. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll I'll come. And, And the centurion finds out about it and he says, no, you don't need to come. Not that he didn't want him to come. He said, I know who you are. I too am someone under authority. I'm under Caesar's authority. And when I speak, it's as if Caesar's speaking. I say to this guy, go, and he goes. I say to him, come, and he comes. Stand, and he stands. 
When I speak, it's as if Caesar's speaking and everybody obeys me. You don't need to come. You just need to speak the word. I know that you speak for God. I know that there is something about you. You don't have to come the 100 yards or 500 yards or however long it was to get over to his house and heal this guy. You can just speak the word and he'll be healed. And when Jesus heard that, Jesus says, wow, let me just tell you guys, Peter, listen up. John, this is worth noting. Matthew, make sure this gets in your book. I've never seen anyone with this kind of faith. Not in all Israel. And then Jesus does something that's really kind of cool. And we'll look at this a little bit later. But if you want to look at it in your Bible and read while I talk, look at, look at verse 10. And then verse 11. He said, truly, I say to you, I've never, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you, this is 8 verse 11. I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? He's talking about the messianic banquet. It's like the kingdom is always viewed as this big, huge incredible Thanksgiving dinner and Abraham's going to be there and Isaac's going to be there and Jacob's going to be there and all the other host of luminaries out of the Old Testament are going to be there and people are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south and it is going to be incredible and Jesus drops three bombshells but I tell you verse 12 The sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. Let it be done just as you believe. And the servant was healed at that very hour. Wow. Jesus heals a Gentile. Because of this incredible faith that he had in Jesus Christ. One more miracle and then I'm going to tie them all together. End of the day, they go back, happen to go to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law happens to be there, but she is sick. Verse 14, so Jesus heals a leper, heals a Gentile, and he heals a woman. Remember, we're, living in, we're reading about a day when women were second-class citizens. You know, most of the people Jesus healed were men, but he healed a lot of women. And I think Matthew includes this strategically for a reason. I'll bring out in just a minute. When Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. You know, I mean, fevers aren't much to us. Take a few aspirin, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, you're good the next day. In those days, that was like terrible, particularly if you were older. And what did he do? He touched her. And the fever left her. And immediately she rises and begins to wait on him. Even with one of our miracle cures, 
you don't feel like doing anything once the fever breaks, not for a few hours, maybe even a day or so. You know, you're just wiped out. But Jesus heals this woman immediately. Now, what is Matthew doing? As he's telling these three stories, we're just going to stop right here. We'll continue it on next week. What is he doing? He's picking out stories, miracles, events in Jesus's life to demonstrate that Jesus is qualified to be the king, that he really is the king. Remember, this is that section of Matthew where Jesus is being vetted. Is he re- does he really have the credibility to do it? Can he really pull it off? Is there deep inside of him the willingness to do it all? And what I did at the beginning was I asked you to sit and think about this whole idea of God's ability to answer our prayers and his willingness to answer our prayers and that whole dilemma that sometimes when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should answer our prayers, it's easy to get bitter and cynical and out of sorts. So here's the question I always like to ask. So what? What do we make of all this that we've just covered? Well, here's the first one, and this is kind of a no-brainer, but it still needs to be said. He is able. He is able. I mean, think about it. The absolute worst disease that that society could have ever imagined, Jesus not only broke the social distancing barriers and the protocols there, He healed that guy immediately, instantaneously. Jesus healed from afar. The centurion was right. I don't need to go walk over there, get into the bedroom where the servant's laying, lay my hands on him. I can speak the word and the guy is healed. I am able. He is able. He's able to heal instantaneously, just like he did with Peter's mother-in-law. You know what? Here's the deal. When you are asking God to do something, you need not never doubt that he is able to do it. Can he do that? Man, if it doesn't violate his character, if it doesn't violate something in Scripture, yeah, he can do it. We've got a God that is able. Now, I know that's probably not something most of us struggle with. But we maybe do struggle sometimes with this next one. And that is, he's willing. He is willing. I think that Matthew specifically quoted the leper there at the beginning in the first story. Do you notice there? I pointed it out. The leper had one question. He didn't say, are you able to take care of lepers? You know, uh, are you that kind of a doctor? No, I'm just a gastroenterologist. I don't take care of lepers. You know, no, I'm just a pulmonologist. I don't, you know, no. He knew he was able. But the leper had another question. Are you willing? Are you willing? 
And the answer was yes. And I want to I want to expand the answer here. You know what? I think God is always, always willing. God is always willing. Does that mean he always says yes? Never will see or no? No. I, I think maybe our idea of, of is he willing, we've kind of turned it and twisted it, is will he do exactly what I say? And the answer is no. Because he is God and he is wise and he fully knows the ends from the beginning. You know, I, I think one of the best metaphors to describe God and his relationship to his people, believers, is that he is a father. Jesus introduced that. It was never in the Old Testament, by the way. It wasn't until Jesus told the disciples, pray, our father who is in heaven. Wow, I can think of God as a father. Yeah. Now, fathers come in all shapes and sizes. And some fathers are really, really good, and some fathers are not so good. No father is perfect. You can find the best father there is, and you can still find some flaws in it, okay? But I think most all of us, no matter what, what, where our father fit in that continuum, most of us recognize that there is an element about a father that that father says yes, that father is willing, that father that father has in mind his child's best. I mean, I honestly can say I am willing to do anything for my kids. I really am. I, I, I mean, I just, you know, I would do it. I would go to the wall for my kids. But you know what? That doesn't mean I have always said yes to them. And it doesn't mean I've always said, sure, right now, we'll do it. I mean... Perhaps most of the time, it's been a we'll see or a no. But that wasn't a comment on the willingness of my heart. It was on me expressing the wisdom to say, no, that, that is a because I've got to say no to. Or no, the timing is definitely not there. But is there a willingness in me? Now, I'm making a fine distinction here, but I think it's a, fine, a distinction that we need to make. Because I think sometimes when God says no or when God says we'll see and, and we don't get that nice yes that just is so affirming, I think somehow it's like in our mind God comes down a few notches. And that shouldn't be. Because the reality is we have a God that is willing. He's just sometimes so smart and so wise, he realizes that's got to be a no. He's overlooking our maturity or overlooking our sinfulness or our immaturity. And he's saying, no, I am not going to give you that Corvette for your 16th birthday. You know, in his wisdom, he's saying no, or he's saying, we'll see, not yet, maybe someday, probably not. But there is still a willingness. You see the difference here? Because I think that I think that is so important because because I think that that we sometimes view God as this vending machine that if you put in enough quarters, you are going to get the candy bar. And so many times we think that it's, you know, 
I, I didn't have enough faith. You know, man, I should have, you know, why isn't he not harping on that centurion, on his great faith? I will in the next point. But, but you know, we, we kind of put it on ourselves. But the truth of the matter is we have a God that is both able and willing. And as people who, who are his children, people who have in faith and trust believed Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us on the cross at Calvary, you can always say, I've got a God that can do that. I've got a God that is willing to do that. He may not do it because of some reason, but, but there is a generosity in him. There is a compassion in him that he is for me. He is for me. When I say no to my kids, when you've said no to your kids, you're still for them. You are all in behind them. I'm all in behind them. But in my wisdom, I'm saying no. In my wisdom, I'm saying we'll see, not yet, maybe later. Maybe this last point is probably the one that we ought to take away and hold the dearest. And that is this. He's able. He's willing. He is trustworthy. There, he, he is believable. He is sincere. Here, here's the deal. When that leper came to Jesus, that leper knew Jesus could handle it. He just wasn't sure whether he was willing to do it. When the centurion came to Jesus, he knew Jesus was able to do it. He didn't bring it out. Are you willing to do it? He just, he just really knew his willing, his ability to do it. But go back and look at that little section there. Chapter eight, verses 10, 11, and 12. Because I think there's something there that's really worth grabbing onto. What Jesus is saying there is this guy has this faith. This guy has this belief. This guy is trusting me so much. And that's what's really the key. That is what's really the key to the kingdom. Because remember, we're, we're, we're in this section where Jesus is, is, his credibility is being demonstrated. He's being vetted. And, and what Jesus does in this situation with this centurion who's got this incredible faith, he is pointing out to the people that, you know what? It is faith that gets you to the banquet. It is faith that gets you to the kingdom. You know, he, he says, I'm just telling you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be there. And guess what? There's going to be a bunch of Gentiles that are going to be there. And there's actually going to be a lot of Jews that won't be there. Why? What's the difference? It is people that have faith. And what Jesus is, 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 is highlighting here, and Matthew as well, is that it is by faith that we are saved. 
It, it, it is it is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And Jesus Christ is being demonstrated or being portrayed as someone you can trust. Now, Matthew is probably writing to people that have trusted Jesus Christ. They're saved. I'm preaching to a bunch of people, the majority of which are saved, who have trusted Christ. You've done that. What Matthew's doing and what I'm doing, I think, is, is that we are pointing out that the life of a believer begins with faith and it continues in the faith. You know, I sincerely trusted Jesus, I believe, as a little five or six-year-old kid in the backseat of my parents' car. What have I done for the last 59 years? Do the math, I just turned 64, sorry. I hope that I have lived the life of faith. Because when I go to God and I'm asking him, and I know I can either get a yes, a maybe, or a no, I hope that I'm going to him, trusting him. And not just trusting that he's able and willing, but trusting that whatever answer I get is okay. And when he says no, praise God. When he says yes, praise God. When he says we'll see, praise God. My faith is not dependent upon whether God produces the candy bars that I think he should. My faith is in a son who loved me and gave himself for me. That centurion had that. I think the leper had it. I think Peter's mother-in-law had it. The question is, do we have it? And there might be some here today that, that, I mean, you need to trust Jesus Christ. Because you've never done that before. You've maybe come to church a bunch. You've been involved. But have you come to the point in your life when you genuinely have trusted Jesus for salvation. I mean, it wasn't something you put in the baskets, the offering, or come and watch some babies, or serve in this, or serve in that. I mean, genuinely, in faith, trusted him. Paul was in a situation, the apostle Paul was in a situation where someone said, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus said, and Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, that's all you've got to do. That's the first thing you've got to do. That's the most important thing you've got to do. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you need to trust him right now. You can do it right there in the quietness of your heart. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to stick up your hand. You just right then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Recognize that what he did on the cross of Calvary 
was die for you. He, he gave you the ultimate healing. It's kind of interesting to think about these miracles. In some ways, these were all temporary. The leper, he eventually died. The servant that got healed, he eventually died. Peter's mother-in-law, she eventually died. Jesus just gave them temporary healing in these situations. But you know what? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he gave us permanent healing. Not from some physical element, ailment, but the spiritual penalty of the wages of sin. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I encourage you right now to trust in him. If you have, I encourage you to trust him today again and again and again and again. Because we weren't just called to trust him 59 years ago in the backseat of our car when our parents asked us about it. We are called to trust him this morning, this afternoon. Every time we pray, we are invited to trust him and recognize that he's able, he's willing, and he is trustworthy. That's the God you have. That's the God I have. That's the Savior we have. And, And we are called to live this life of trust, of walk with him, that yes, we let our requests be made known unto him, And we give him glory because we know that he hears us and he answers. And like every good father, sometimes, many times, he says yes. But sometimes he says we'll see and sometimes he says no. But God is still good. He's still able. He's still willing. Best of all, He's someone you can trust. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us right now because I'll bet almost every one of us here today have something we need to trust you about. Maybe it's a relationship that's just kind of gone sideways. Maybe it's something we've been wanting to happen and it just hadn't happened. Maybe it's because we need a better job. Maybe it's because we need uh, healing and it just hasn't come. Maybe we have uh, grave concerns about a loved one who has wandered far away from you, or at least far away from us. And uh, Father, I, I know that every one of us here probably have something we've got to trust you about. I pray, Father, that today we would have the faith of that centurion. We would know that you could say, come, and he comes, go, and he goes, whatever. And so, Lord, we we just trust you to work in your time, in your space, in your way. And Father, I pray that that would give us great comfort. I pray that today we would feel liberated 
that that burden that we're trusting you about or that we need to trust you about, I pray, Father, we would have just left it here at the cross, knowing that you're gonna, you've got it. You're going to take care of it. And, Father, again, if there's someone here that has never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that uh, even right now they would trust in him, the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. So thank you, Lord, for your word and the insight and uh, direction that it gives to us. In Jesus' name, amen.